Now, where we're going today in the Word of God, we're going to talk about that word unity, and we're not just going to talk about it. We're going to see if we can walk out differently than when we walked in. Think with me. Television advertising is a multi-billion dollar industry. For example, uh, in the uh, uh, Super Bowl this year, a 30-second advertisement on television cost, do you remember, $7 million. $7 million. And uh, that's a far cry different than the first television commercial 75 years ago. That cost $9, and it was much longer. Now, what makes a television commercial exceptionally good is that it is memorable. So as you look at this picture where people have white mustaches, do you remember the question that this commercial asked? Got milk? Got milk? See, that made it memorable. Here's another one. See if, if, if you can remember this. 81-year-old Miss Clara, remember that? She would go through a drive up and she would be cranky and she would shout, where's the beef? Absolutely. And she was saying that Wendy's had real beef in their hamburgers. Now, in the early 1980s, there was a company that manufactured cars, Ford Motor, and they were being uh, outpaced in sales by Honda and Toyota because, sadly, the quality of a Ford car kept plummeting. And so they came out with an advertising mantra, Ford, where what? Quality is job one. Quality is job one. Now, what we're going to be having to understand is they went on and they said, we get it, we're sorry, we're fixing things. Now, when you and I look at life today, I think that the church, the body of Christ, could make that very same statement. We get it, we're sorry, and we're going to fix it in the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's not quality. No, it is unity. We must lead well in unity. Have to. Now, let's just stop and think about the day and age in which we live. We are living in a country that has a culture of division like never before. Politically, Republicans and Democrats are at polar opposites as never before. So out there in our real world, people are at odds with one another. And it's the same thing at school or at work. Could be in the neighborhood. Neighbors are at odds with one another. Could even be in a family where the in-laws and the outlaws are at odds with one another. Could be in a marriage where a husband and a wife are far apart relationally. But you know what? It even happens in a church where people are at odds with one another. And I believe that in the American church, I've been a preacher for 40 years, been around the block a few times, been on a, over 125 mission trips, so it doesn't matter where I go, I see division in the body of Christ. And if there's any place that ought not to be divided, it is in the body of Christ. 
because how would anybody out there who's an unbeliever want to be in here if we don't get along? Why would I want to go someplace where people cannot get along? So all across America, churches are experiencing disunity. And what you and I want to see is that we can lead well in unity. Well, and you might be thinking, well, that's not my job. That's uh, Pastor Mark's job. He's the preacher. He's got to lead well. No. Well, that's the elder's job. That's what they got to do. Yep, the elder's got to do it. Listen up. Gentlemen, if you and I are a husband, if you and I are a dad, if you and I are a grandpa, guess what? We're a leader. Ladies. Oh, it's the men who lead. No, ladies, just reason with me. If you're a wife, if you're a mom, if you are a grandma, you are a leader. And why is that? Because here, here's a simple definition of leader or leadership. Leadership is, ready, ready, here we go, one word, influence. Leadership is influence. If you are in a position of influence, young people at school, in your classroom, in your grade level, if you have influence, you are, ergo, a leader. So we don't get one of these get out of leadership free cards. No, if you and I are a person of influence, we are a leader. And what are we to be doing? Leading people to a place of greater unity. It's our responsibility. Leading people to a place of greater unity. So. What we're going to do is we're going to take some time to get in the Word of God and go to a text that speaks powerfully about this. We're going to be in the book of Philippians. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles, whether in print form or on a tablet or a telephone, if you would turn with me to the book of Philippians. Now, a little bit of context before the content uh, anybody remember who wrote Philippians? Shout out his name. Anybody? Paul did. Paul wrote Philippians. And why is that? Because he was at Philippi. Now, Philippi was not just any old town. Philippi was a Roman colony. And what that means is that Rome was investing in that colony. They wanted it to, to be a utopia community. They were putting uh, roads in and building buildings, and Rome would foot the bill. And so, as a result, Rome would put a whole bunch of soldiers there to protect their investment. Rome was helping Philippi to become an incredible place. Now, what's also interesting is that Paul happened to be there. The story is told in Acts 16. He goes there and he meets a businesswoman by the name of Lydia. He tells Lydia about Jesus and lo and behold, Lydia, this accomplished businesswoman, uh, is immersed into Christ. She becomes a believer. And a church is planted in that Roman colony of Philippi. Now, Paul, later on, got arrested. And while he's incarcerated, he's writing a number of letters. They're called the prison letters or the prison epistles. And uh, one of them was to this church in Philippi. Now, what we want to understand is what we're about to read has a lot to do with unity. And unity is our job one. Okay, here we go. Uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, 
if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only after your own interests, but also after the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's an incredible text. This is sometimes called a hymn, H-Y-M-N, a hymn of the ancient church. It's one of the most powerful passages in the entire New Testament to describe the work and the person of Jesus. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to ask three questions to unpack this text. We're going to ask why, we're going to ask how, we're going to ask what. Why, how, what? So here's the first question. Why did Paul even write this letter? Why did he write this letter? Well, for one reason, the uh, prison system in the first century in the Roman culture, if I was behind bars, I would only eat if you brought me food. They didn't have a big food service in a prison where they're cooking for everybody. If I were going to keep warm in the winter, I would only because you would bring me a cape or a cloak of some kind. Paul was writing a thank you letter. There's one of the reasons why he wrote this letter. He told him thank you. If you just glance in chapter 4, verse 10, he says, I rejoice greatly that at last you've renewed your concern for me. He says, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. In other words, the people in Philippi didn't know what prison Paul happened to be incarcerated where he was. They didn't know where he was. Now they found out where he was, and help started coming to him. So he's saying, hey, thanks. Thanks for ministering to me, keeping me alive. Now that's one reason, but there's a much deeper reason as to why he wrote that letter. Now remember, when they would write a letter, it wasn't like you and I writing a letter, putting it in an envelope, putting on a stamp, sending it, or emailing it, etc. No. This, this was written on a what? Remember? And they would roll it up. They would write it on a scroll. So Paul wrote the letter on a scroll, rolled it up, and he sealed it with uh, wax. He gave it to a courier. Epaphroditus was his name. Epaphroditus took it uh, over to Philippi. He saw the elders of the church in Philippi, and he said, here, here's a letter from Paul. And the elders would go, Why, we got mail, we got mail. We're having church tonight. And they would have church that night. So here comes the church. They light the candles or they light the lamps, and they're having church. And the lead elder 
he breaks the seal and he starts reading out loud to the people of the church in Philippi this letter. All right, now, with that setting in mind, listen to what this says in chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. I plead. That's a pretty strong word. I beg. I beg. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Synctica to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now just imagine that. Paul's letter is being read out loud and all of a sudden the lead elder, as he's reading it, he looks up and there's Yodia sitting in the back corner. And over in the opposite corner, there's Syncticus sitting because those two ladies couldn't get along. They're at each other's throat, so to speak. And Paul is calling them out in his letter publicly. You two women, you get along. I've had enough of your disunity. Can you imagine? Those ladies would have been sinking in their chair. Oh, my word. He's mentioned me in his letter. See, this letter, one of the reasons why Paul wrote it was because people were not getting along in Philippi. That's pretty embarrassing. Uh, here's another example of that. In our text, he says in verse 3 and in verse 4, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, why would Paul write that? Remember, while he's writing, uh, ink and paper was pretty much a luxury. Why did he write that? He's under the uh, moving of the Holy Spirit in his mind, moving that pen and he says, you've got to get along. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Think with me for a moment. Whenever an angel showed up in the Bible, the angel always said something first. Anybody remember typically what that angel said? What were the... Fear not. Very good. Fear not. Think with me. The night of the birth of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. And lo, there were shepherds uh, watching their uh, sheep out in fields at night when suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were terrified. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. Don't be afraid. I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all. Fear not. Now, just think with me for a moment. Why did the angel have to say, fear not? Because the people were what? Afraid. Whenever that angel showed up, we're talking about a mighty warrior for God. Hallmark Christmas cards have it all wrong. Ladies, promise me you will never buy another Christmas card with an angel on it. They are anti-scriptural. They are not biblical images of angels. If that blonde bombshell on a Hallmark Christmas card had appeared to those shepherds that night, they would have said, hey, baby, come on over to the fire. Let's keep warm together. That's what they would have said. No, they said, fear not, the angel said. Why did Paul have to write this? Because they weren't doing this. They were not united. That speaks to us today. We're not united 
in our country, we're so divided, but not just in our country, in our businesses, our homes, our schools, our community, even in the local church. In the local church, people don't get along. Older people don't like the younger people and their music. Younger people don't like the older people and their music. The generations are not getting along in the church all across America. We have people uh, in leadership all across America in churches. The elders, they're fussing and fighting with the deacons and the deacons with the elders and the trustees and they don't like the preacher and they don't like this and we have people murmuring, moaning and groaning in the church. What does that do to build unity? Nothing. And yet it says in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3, chapter 4 verse 3, make every effort to maintain unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what the good book says. And so I would just have to ask myself, by my actions and my attitudes, what am I doing to maintain unity, not tear it down? And remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever's in my interior world, whatever's in my mind, that's what's going to spill out of my mouth. Am I speaking words that tear down, that criticize, or am I building up the body of Christ? So you and I have got to understand that unity is job one. It's job one. Whether at home, at work, in the community, or in the church. Because that looks like Jesus. You know, um, uh, I heard of a story. I, I saw it later in the Christian Standard some years ago. That's the magazine of our churches. And uh, it told a story about a pilot the pilot's name, Henry Dempsey. This happened uh, a few years back when Eastern Airlines still existed. And Henry was a pilot for Eastern Airlines. He was flying one day in September of 1987 uh, a Beechcraft, a small computer, uh, commuter airplane from Lewiston, Maine to Boston. And uh, it was empty. He and his co-pilot were taking that plane back to Boston to get some people. And they got out over the North Atlantic Ocean. Uh, they were about 4,000 feet uh, above the ocean when suddenly they heard a sound in the back passenger compartment. So Henry said to his co-pilot, fly the plane, I'm going to go check on that. He undid his seatbelt. He goes back into the passenger compartment when suddenly they hit some turbulence. And Henry Dempsey fell against the door of that small commuter aircraft, and the door flew open, and Henry flew out 4,000 feet above the Atlantic Ocean. An alarm went off in the cockpit about that, and the co-pilot immediately assumed that Dempsey was down below in the ocean. He radioed to the nearest airport, Portland, Maine, asking for permission to plan, uh, land that plane. He gave coordinates uh, immediately said, send out the Coast Guard, please, immediately. He brought that plane in and he landed it at almost 200 miles an hour. And when that plane came to a stop and he shut the motors off, he got out of his seat and as he was getting out of that plane, there was Henry. When the door flew open, Henry had the presence of mind to take hold of the door or the, uh, uh, the handles of that stairwell that were built into that door. 
And there he was hanging upside down, and his head was less than 12 inches from the concrete when that plane landed at almost 200 miles an hour. Now, you see, when that door flew open and Henry flew out, he had one of two choices to make. Let go and die or hold on and live. Loved ones, when we have turbulence all of a sudden in a marriage, we hold on to that marriage. We do not let go. When there's turbulence in a family with the kids or the grandkids, we hold on in the midst of that turbulence. We do not let go. When there is conflict at work with your coworkers, your boss, your supervisor, we don't walk out and quit in a huff. We hold on and we make it through that turbulent time. And listen to my heart on this. I'm a preacher. I'm also an elder at Indian Creek Christian Church where I was the preacher for 30 years. There's always going to be turbulence in a church. And you don't quit because you got your feelings hurt and you go to the next church down the street because they got a better band or a prettier building. You don't leave. You stay and you work through the turbulence in the power of who? What's his name? Jesus. That's what you do. And that brings honor and glory to Jesus. Is there a witness in the house? Do you say amen around here? Okay. All right. Now, I give you permission in the name of Jesus. Be more Pentecostal and less Presbyterian. Okay? All right. All right. So there's the why that Paul wrote this letter. They were at odds in Philippi. They were not getting along. All right. Now, here's our second question. How? How on earth can we live this out? How do we live it out? Well, it's right there in verse 5. We're going to go to that next section. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Where does an attitude live? Right here in the mind. It's how we think, right? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Well, how did Jesus think? It's right here in the text. He didn't consider himself, uh, even though he was in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Now, I just want to talk about some of these words in Greek. Even though he was in very nature God, that meant that he and God were one and the same. He's one and the same. Paul says in the letter to Colossae, to the church in Colossae, he says, in Christ the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. So while Jesus walked on planet earth, not only was he fully human, but he was fully who? Fully God. Chapter 2, verse 9, Colossians, in Christ the fullness of the deity, God, dwells in bodily form. Now, what you and I want to understand, even though he's completely equal to God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to, something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. And that word nothing, he made himself nothing, imagine a five-gallon bucket, and it's filled with water, and we're going to empty the water, we pour it out, but then that word is so powerful in Greek, it means that he shook out every last drop of water. He wanted no claim to equality with God. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He said the same thing three times right there. And if it's repeated, it is important. It's important. 
So what he's doing here, he's stressing this is what Jesus did, and he humbled himself. And that word humble, it means in Greek to go to a lower place, and he literally did that. Jesus left the glory of heaven, the abode of God, and he came to a lower place called planet Earth, and he became obedient to death, even death where? On a cross. So how do you and I pursue unity as job one in a marriage, a family, at work, in the community, at school, at church? It has everything to do with humility. Now, put a marker here. We're going to come back one last time to Philippians. I want us to see the last night in the life of Jesus. We're going to go to the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 17, we have the single longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the entire Bible. It's phenomenal. So remember, he is eating the Lord's Supper, the, the Last Supper, Passover, with his disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem. When that dinner's done, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays in Gethsemane. Here's a part of this prayer. Here's a part of this prayer on that very night. Chapter 17, notice uh, in verse 1, he begins praying for himself. Then in verse 6, he prays for his guys. And then in verse 20, he prays for us. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That would be you and me. He's literally, on the last night of his life, praying for us because we came to believe in him through the message of the disciples, their faithfulness, generation after generation. And this is his prayer, that all of them may be what? One, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's his one prayer for us with about six hours left until he is impaled on a cross. In about six hours, T minus six hours and counting, he's going to be executed. And the last thing on his mind for all of us was not a new building, not a building expansion, not a capital campaign, not a bigger choir or a bigger band. What was his one prayer request for us? Unity. Unity. And what I want us to notice here is that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. He's not praying for organizational unity. He's not praying for philosophical unity. He's praying for relational unity. Relational unity. We've got to get that. And if we are not relationally united in a marriage with a, a believing spouse if we're not relationally united in a family, a Christian family, if we're not relationally united in the church, the bride of Christ, we got a problem, and it's not with Houston. You know, Apollo 13, got a problem, Houston? No, if we're not united with one another, we got a problem, and it's with Jesus. And you know what? I don't want to have a problem with Jesus. Can't speak for you, but as for me, I don't want a problem with Jesus. 
So if I'm not making every effort to maintain unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as it says in the good book, I don't look very Christian. I don't care how, how many years I've been walking with Christ. I don't care how many years I've been an elder. I don't care how many years I've been a preacher. If I'm not behaving like Jesus, I don't look like him, and he's going to hold me what? Accountable on the day of judgment. All of us are going to stand before God on the day of judgment. All of us will. And if you and I are creating difficulty in the church, we're going to be held accountable. And this is pretty important because check out this truth. In verse 21, he says, May they be one, uh, us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, that tells us unity in the church reflects God outside of the church. Reflects God outside of the church. One of our partner churches, we're working with 76 specific churches from Alaska to Florida, from the Pacific to the Atlantic. And one of our partner churches far from here, they're not getting along at all. All of the staff have resigned and left. Some of the elders have quit and left. And I just said to them, well, guess what? They know that out there. They know that you're at it again. This isn't the first time you've done this. And the whole city knows you're at it again. And I pointed to this prayer of Jesus. When we don't get along in the body of Christ, it's not just between us. No, all of the unbelievers out there know. And then they say, why would I want to be a part of that? You see, unity is what? Job number one. That's got to be our number one focus has to be. And when I look at this prayer of Jesus, the word Father is very important. Jesus chose to call him Father again and again and again. For example, even on the cross, the very first statement on the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. While they're nailing him to the cross, Father, forgive them. At the end of the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit over and again. If he was teaching people about God, hey, this is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, he would call God Father. If he's speaking to God, he called him Father. There's that one time on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Mark's got some kids. I've got some kids. I know a lot of you who've got kids. My sons do not call me Gary. If they did, they're not in the will, and there's not much in the will anyway, all right? They call me, my boys call me dad, and that is not only a term of endearment, but it's also a decision of respect, and that is exactly what Jesus did. He respected God. He made himself nothing, and he he submitted himself to God out of humility. So listen up from the prayer of Jesus with six hours left to live. You and I learn that these are two essentials. This is required. This is not optional. This is not a mere suggestion. No. And it's not coming from preacher Gary. It's coming from the greatest preacher of all time whose name is 
Jesus, and he says you must submit to one another, and that will only happen if you are humble in heart. But even if I have a sliver of pride in me, I'm not going to humble myself. And there will never be relational unity. Remember when when Paul writes in Ephesians about the ladies, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Remember that one, chapter 5, verse 22, ladies? Well, whenever I preach that, I don't start in verse 22. I back up to verse 21. It's the topic sentence of that paragraph, by the way. And in verse 21, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's where real health comes in a marriage, when we mutually submit to one another. And that's in the good book. You know, another verse in the good book that many times we, we ignore, we might not even know it's there, is Hebrews 13, verse 17. You might write it down. And let me tell you what will bring health and healing to any church in America. Hebrews 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders, submit to their authority. For they keep watch over your souls as men who must give an account. Make their work a joy and not a burden. For of what benefit would that be to you? Did you hear that? That's in the good book. So when we complain and gripe about our spiritual leaders, we're breaking a very important commandment in the book, and we're going to be held accountable for that. Out of the abundance of the heart, my mouth speaks So if I'm complaining about Pastor Mark or Chris or Matt or Jeremiah or whomever, if I'm moaning and groaning about the elders of Central Christian Church, you want to know something? You are disobeying Hebrews 13, verse 17. And you are not making their work a joy, but nothing less than a burden. You are not making every effort to maintain unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and there will never be unity in this place. And listen up. I get around the block a lot. I'm in a lot of churches. You got a good thing going here. Jesus is getting glory here. And you want to know something? You have become a threat to the kingdom of darkness. The enemy wants to take you out. And he's going to work overtime to destroy this church. And how does he do that? By causing conflict between people. You have got to watch your back. You've got to pray militant prayers against the kingdom of darkness. And the more that you maintain effort, making every effort to maintain unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, you're going to keep getting healthier and healthier and be a greater threat to the kingdom of darkness as never before. Does that make sense? And it all starts with me. With one person, all of us have got to understand that. You know, a puffer fish, this is very interesting, a puffer fish. Uh, this, this fish right now is feeling threatened because it has expanded its size by many times. And these spines are its defense mechanism. Uh, this puffer fish has a toxin in it that is 1,200 times more potent than cyanide. And there's enough toxin in this one pufferfish that can kill 30 of us in this room, 30 of us. And, and when I was reading about this, actually learning about it on uh, Discovery, and it's got to be right because it's been on the Discovery Channel, okay? 
what you and I need to understand, and this is how it spoke to me, when I get all puffed up, I become toxic to the people around me. When I get all puffed up with power and pride, with my position, and I'm not a servant of Jesus, when I get all puffed up, I become toxic to Leah, my wife of 45 years. I become toxic to my sons, my daughters-in-law, my six grandkids, my friends, my ministry team. When I, when I get all puffed up, I'm toxic. And so you and I, we have to remember something, that pride was the very first sin committed. Not eating that piece of forbidden fruit, that was not the first sin. That was the first sin of humankind. The first sin committed was by Satan as he rebelled against God, wanting to be just like God. And that is why pride is called the cardinal sin. And it's at the top of the list in in Proverbs chapter 6 when it says there are six things that God hates, seven that he despises, and the first thing is pride. You and I need to, like Jesus, remember how we think determines how we act or live. Our beliefs determine behaviors. Jesus, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So how do we maintain pride or uh, maintain unity? We destroy pride in our lives. We move to a lower place. Now, let me tell you real quick, four things that I'm doing in my, my daily walk in my uh, 2023. This is a part of my life map. I want to look different on New Year's Eve than I did on New Year's Day this year. To attack pride in my life, go last, I want to go last. I don't have to be the first one through the intersection. I don't have to be the first one through the checkout lane at the store because when I, I'm always in a hurry, oh, I'm more important. i got places to go, people to see, things to know. Deliberately put yourself at the end of the line, and that will counter pride. Let go. Number two, let go. Let go of being in control. A lot of us are control freaks. Got to be in control. Jesus, let go. Number three, be quick. Be quick to praise others. Be quick to see good in their lives. Be quick to see how wonderful uh, they're doing in life. And be quiet. I don't have to talk about me, myself, and I. How often do I, do you use that first person singular pronoun? We have to attack pride because it is insidious and it will destroy a relationship. All right, now, why, how, what? Here we are, we're wrapping up. What? What matters most in this text, this letter, this passage, this ancient hymn of the church? Therefore God exalted him. And gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God exalted him to the highest place. See, what matters most is that Jesus gets the glory. We don't have to wait until the day that we draw our last breath here and we are there, first breath there, seeing him to give him glory. We can give him glory right now. You know what impressed me this morning? 
The very first word spoken at Central Christian Church in Worship, the very first word that was spoken, did you hear it in the lyric of the choir? It was the name Jesus. You know what? That makes me think of your first core value here. You know your first core value? What is it? Jesus is what? Central. See, you declared your worship service right there by declaring what matters most, it's Jesus. Not us, it's Jesus. And that's what matters most. And you and I need to live that way every day that God gives us the breath of life. I am privileged to be alive today. So are you. We could have died in our sleep. It doesn't matter what age we are. But God in His infinite grace gave you and me life. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. It says, because of your great compassion, we are not consumed. Your mercies, they never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's where we get that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, Lamentations 3, verse 22 and 23. Now listen to that. Your mercies, God, they never fail. They are new every morning. And that in Hebrew of the Old Testament means that you and I today, on May the 21st of 2023, we are seeing new mercies today that we never saw before in our lives. That's what that means in Hebrew. You and I are seeing new mercies today that we never saw before. And you talk about giving God the glory. That's, I, I have life today, the breath of life to bring him glory. That's what matters most. It's all about Jesus, not about Gary. It's not about you. Romans chapter 12, what did Paul say? Verse 1, he said, Therefore, brothers and sisters, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as what? Living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's real worship. Not, this isn't the, the only concept of worship. Worship is how you and I live today and every day that he gives us the breath of life. And that phrase, living sacrifices, Paul, he's using that on purpose because in the Old Testament, they had sacrifices, but those sacrifices, the doves, the pigeons, the lambs, the goats, the oxen, they were all very dead. They were dead. You and I need to die to self. Die to self, and that's being a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of the culture of the United States of America. America is sick on selfishness. America is sick on power. America is sick on pleasure. I want whatever I want to bring me pleasure. And you know what? When you and I are living sacrifices, we stand out like a sore thumb. And more than anything, I hope that people see Jesus in us, that we live no longer conformed to the pattern of this culture of ours, but we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, how we think. We're going to think differently. If we think differently, we're going to live differently. Then we'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. You know, Copernicus, let me close with Nicholas. Nicholas Copernicus was a Polish astronomer. He was a brilliant scientist, brilliant mathematician. And one of his greatest discoveries was that the sun is the center of our universe, not Earth. Up until that day, 
Everybody believed that Earth was the center of the universe and the sun, the moon, the planets all revolved around planet Earth, that we were the center of the universe. <laughs> and old Nick said, nope, we got that one wrong. And it was his discovery of heliocentrism. The sun is the center of the universe, and we go around the sun. There were a lot of people who did not like him as a result. Even Martin Luther, who left the Catholic Church and started Lutheranism, the Protestant Reformation. Even Martin Luther did not agree with him. It was a wake-up call. And maybe it's a wake-up call for you and for me. Life does not revolve around me. I am not the most important. No, the S-O-N of God is most important. And he gets the glory every day that he gives me the breath of life. So lead well, church, in unity, and all will be well. So says the word. Jesus, how grateful, grateful, grateful we are for another day of life. And how grateful we are that in your great grace you have saved us with your death on a cross. We can't even begin to fathom what it is that we have in you. What a privilege to worship you. What a privilege to serve you. And thank you for giving us a job. A job that must be absolute priority in all of our lives. And that is the unity. The unity of not only the body of Christ, the family of God, but our own families. May we walk out of this room determined to be peacemakers. Because you, Jesus, you even preached in your sermon, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I pray your blessing upon your bride called Central. I pray that every person who makes this place home would be under your protective care. Would you dispatch, please, righteous warring angels to protect them from the kingdom of darkness, every life, every marriage, every family, the work of their hands, the health in their bodies, their finances, everything about the people of God in your bride called Central. May they live under the protective, watchful care and compassion of their creator, savior, sustainer, Jesus. And together we say,